Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, team. Thank you, William. Appreciate it. That's all right. And good morning yet again. Glad that you guys are here. Glad that we do get to continue to worship as we look into the word. Grab the Bible, your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our new sermon series, walking through this Old Testament book. Hope you've got a copy of God's word, if not, maybe a device. Uh, but we'll be in Daniel chapter 2 in just a second. And while you're turning there, happy Father's Day. Uh, we are happy to have all of you here. Hope that you're going to have an opportunity uh, to honor your dad. If you are a dad in the room, hope you had a chance to be honored already or you get a chance to experience that a little bit today. Uh, and look, we all we do want to take time. This is kind of an American holiday that we have created, but it's, it is good to honor our fathers. And just for a moment, I'd love for you to kind of go back and think about your dad when you were a kid. Uh, like, think about just his presence and just who he was in your life when you were growing up, when you were really little. Because when we are kids, our dads just loom large in our life, do they not? They are quite literally giants, are they not? Uh, I distinctly remember, like, if I ever got scared or worried, I would just kind of run behind my dad and grab onto this tree trunk of a leg because he was quite literally three times larger than me. And there's a safety there. There's a security to say, hey, my dad is here. And you can tell when dad is not there, can you not? Uh, when the father's away, it, it changes things, right? You might have a little bit more anxiety for the family. And then there's a change when, when he returns. You can kind of feel that. And our fathers, they, they bring that into our life, that presence, that strength, that they bring that for us. We ought to honor them for that. But then this crazy thing happens. Uh, you grow up right? And as we all grow up looking up to our dad, sooner or later, there comes a time where you don't physically look up to him anymore. You might be as tall as he is. You might even get a couple inches on him and you begin to look down on him just a little bit, physically, of course. And all of a sudden, maybe for some of us, you, you actually become a dad. And so that's a new experience where you don't simply look up to a dad. You actually are a dad. And then sadly, for some of us, we've had to say goodbye to our dads, or maybe you don't have a good relationship with your dad, and you don't feel that strength, you don't feel that presence anymore, and you're left on your own. And those are moments that can be disconcerting. When you feel like it's more on you, instead of having someone to rely on, that can be unbelievably difficult. And in those moments, we all need to remember, no matter whether you're a man or a woman, whether you are a father or not, whether your father's still with us or not, that all of us have a heavenly father that we can always look up to. And when you and I keep that perspective, that's what can give us grounding and security in the midst of chaotic times. And that's what we're going to see in Daniel chapter 2 today. Now, buckle up. If you look at chapter 2 in its entirety, it is long, and we're going to read the whole thing. This is where talking fast really comes in handy. And so listen, if I talk too fast for you today, you can listen to the podcast later and crank down the speed, all right? So that's always an option for you. Praise be to technology. All right, so uh, let's start in Daniel chapter 2 in verse 1 and hear what the scripture says. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. 
If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb for limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and the interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Let's stop right there. Here we find King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the same king we found in chapter one. This is the king of the Babylonian empire. He is the reigning monarch of the time. His empire spans his known world. He's conquering everything, including the Israelites. He has already begun the deportation of the exiles, the remnant out of Israel. That's how Daniel and his friends end up in Babylon. He conquers everything, but he's got a problem. He is anxious. Now, does that seem odd to you? Because it seems odd to me. Because why would, why would Nebuchadnezzar feel anxious about anything? He is literally the most powerful man on the planet. He speaks and things happen. He lives at the center of an empire. He commands armies. And when those armies go out, they conquer. Anybody who rebels, he crushes them. He has seen success on all sides. He has more power, more money, more influence than anyone on the planet. How can someone with that much power feel anxious? And yet he is. You see, deep, deep in his heart, he recognizes that, yes, I'm the head of an empire, but when you've conquered everybody to get where you are, you realize that somebody's always going to be after your job. You can't ever rest. You're always looking around to see who might take it from you. And even though you've done so much, you've won so much, you're always in fear of losing. And so he's anxious. He's got dreams that trouble him. And look, while you and I may not be the monarchs of a Near Eastern empire, I hope that we understand that the same is true for us. You see, our culture tells us, no, you can be the king of your own kingdom. Just look in yourself. As long as you are true to yourself, you do exactly what you want to do and you have the freedom and the power to do what you want to do, you will be good. You will have peace. You will have security. Everything will be fine. But what happens when you look inside yourself and you still can't find peace? What happens when you're successful, you get everything you were after and you look inside and you still don't have peace. You still face that anxiety. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is feeling because it afflicts all of us. But good for him. He has a whole army of enchanters, wise men, people who are supposed to know things like this. So he calls them all in and says, hey, listen, uh, I had a dream. I need you to tell me what the dream was and its interpretation. They said, okay, this is great. Tell us the dream and we will interpret it. Which P.S., this was very normal in Babylon. Having weird dreams and getting them interpreted was like a cottage industry in Babylon. There, there, is a, there are books and books of dreams that people have had and the possible interpretations and then what happened. And so what the, the wise men are expecting is this. They're going to hear the dream 
And they wouldn't just make up an interpretation. They would go back to all their books. They would get everybody together. They would cross-reference everything. They would look at it all and say, after careful study, King, here is the interpretation of your dream. That's what they're expecting. And instead, he says, no, 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 no. You got to tell me the dream too. If you can tell me the dream, then I'll know you're actually good enough to tell me what it actually means. So tell me the dream. And they're like, uh, no, we can't, we can't do that. Now, look, on, on the one hand, this is a completely irrational request, right? Because nobody can do that. On the other hand, it does make a kind of sense, does it not? Like, if these guys claim to have all this supernatural knowledge, then surely they ought to be able to do this as well. And he's basically calling their bluff. He says, you guys claim to have all this. Uh, you got to really show it to me because there's never going to be an end to people who are trying to fool you. Is there... We have the same kind of thing today. There's always people out to fool us. There's always people out there saying they know things when they don't actually know things, and they will fool you if you are not careful. We still have fortune tellers today. You know that, right? You can go sit with a fortune teller and pay them money, and they will say, I sense in your future that you have a job that is sometimes stressful. Well done. Well done. Who does not have a job that is sometimes stressful? Astrologers will tell you, oh, I see that you're a Sagittarius. And what that means is, is that you have a personality that is different from other people's. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Amazing power you must have. What about supplement peddlers? Here, hold this bottle there. Mm, I can tell by the way that you're holding that bottle with your fingers that you've got a couple of deficiencies. Here, let me sign you up for $300 a month of supplements. Really? How else would I hold it except with my fingers? What is this thing that you are doing? There have even been Christians who have tried to do this. Oh, the Lord is speaking to me today. The Lord, the Holy Spirit has told me that somebody here has a wife whose name contains the letter A. Anyone, anyone, you, sir, you, sir. Oh, and you, and you, and you. Oh, no, should have picked a different letter. Wait a minute. There's all kinds of people who claim to have knowledge who will fool you. And so Nebuchadnezzar's not having it. He says, no, if you are actually able to tell me interpretation, you ought to be able to tell me the dream too. To which they say, nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. That is impossible. No one can do that. No king has ever asked this. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar gets angry. He gets so furious, he just decides he's going to murder them all. You can do that when you're a monarch. Did you know that? You can just have a whole group of people wiped out. And that's what he's going to do. He says, fine, if you can't do it, then you're useless. I will kill everyone. But please understand, at the back of almost all anger, you're going to find fear. At the back of almost all anger, you're going to find fear. And there's fear in Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know why? He just reached the end of his power. When his enchanters can't tell him what's going on, here's what that just showed him. There's things he can't do. There's things he can't know. There's things he can't control. There are things he can't fix. He just realized that there are things that he cannot do, and he is scared of that, and it's going to come out as anger. Dads, you ever found yourself in a place where you got scared because there were things you couldn't control? There were things you couldn't fix. There were things you couldn't figure out. And the way that that came out was anger. What do you do when you come to the end of yourself and you can't control things anymore? Well, Nebuchadnezzar just decides he's going to kill everyone. Let's see how that works out. Look at verse 13. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. 
He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes his kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel and his friends' lives are on the line. This is no idle threat. Nebuchadnezzar is no stranger to murdering folks and having them killed. He'll do that to entire nations. He knows that they can do that, but when his life is on the line, Daniel and his friends do one thing. When there is a crisis that literally threatens to overwhelm everything in their life, they simply do one thing. Go back to verse 17 and look what it says. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Do you know what the one thing they do in the midst of a crisis They prayed. They prayed. All of their lives are on the line. They don't scramble. They don't strategize. They pray. He gathers his friends together, tells them, and says, the one thing we have to do is pray about this. We need to ask God to do the impossible because it's clear no one can do this, but we have a God who does the impossible. They pray. His first instinct is, is to pray. When you and I face a crisis, is it our first instinct to pray? I'm glad I said it again. When you and I face a crisis, is it our first instinct to pray? Is that the first thing that we do? Because can I admit something to you? That's not always the first thing that I do. I know I'm the pastor and I'm supposed to tell you that, oh, every time, yeah, it's fine. It doesn't always work that way. Because when there's a crisis, I want to do something. When there's a problem, I want to fix it. I want to do something. And guess what? Things got to get done. Somebody's got to do something. And if you're the guy there, if you're the dad in charge, if you're the guy in charge, if you're the person in charge, you may say, hey, listen, I need to do something. God knows that. But in this kind of situation, you cannot do it. You cannot fix it. Instead, Daniel recognizes that there's nothing I can do in this situation. The most important thing I can do in this situation is to pray. You see, when prayer is not our first option, when prayer is not the first thing that we do, that reveals something. This is not a problem of resolve. This is not a failure of resolve. This is not a failure of time management. This is not a failure of busyness in our life. It is a failure of belief. Because when we say, yes, I should pray, but I'm going to do these other things, here's what that tells us. What I really believe is, is that it's all on me. 
that I've got to fix it, that I've got to do the thing, I've got to take care of it. It's all on me. Sure, God may be out there somewhere, but in reality, it is all on me. We say that there's a steadfast God who holds the times and the seasons, who owns the world, but in reality, we act as if he's not there. Because you see, prayer is an act of surrender and dependence. For you and I to stop and pray, it is an act of surrender and dependence to say, I can't. I can't, God, you can, but I can't. It is an act of surrender and dependence to say, God, you alone are in charge. You alone are wise so much more than me. You can do more than me. It is an act of surrender and dependence. And so when Daniel and his friends face a crisis, the very first thing, the only thing, the most important thing they do is they pray. And when they do, God gives an answer. Daniel goes to sleep and he gets a vision of his own. He actually gets the dream and the interpretation. And he wakes up. When he wakes up, he does not immediately jump out of bed and go running into the king's presence to save his skin. No, the first thing he does after that is to worship. Did you catch that? We get a whole psalm here. He says, I want to give praise to God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He stops to worship. Because worship is also an act of surrender and dependence to say, God, you are most important. God, you are the sovereign over all the universe. And so, God, I give you thanks and praise, which is why we need worship as well. This is why what we're doing right now in this room, what we do every single Sunday when we come in here is helpful. Why? Because it restores our perspective. When you and I come into worship, it is an act to say, I am not in charge. I am not the center. There is a God who is in control. And I don't want it to be about me. I want to give worship and praise to him. This is why we need to be here every single week. I hope when you came here today, you didn't come simply out of habit. I hope, really hope you didn't come out of guilt. I hope you came here this morning to say, I want to give worship and praise to the God who is worthy of it. I want to give worship and praise to the God who is worthy. And you get to gather together with hundreds of people who all believe the same thing. You're not going to get that out on the world. You're not going to get that out on the internet. But when you come in this room, you get to gather with hundreds of people who have the same perspective, who recognize that even though you may not see it and outwardly it may not look that way, there is a God who is completely and firmly in control. We need that perspective. We need that, and this is what worship and prayer gives to us. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what will be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, 
This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel responds with unbelievable humility in this situation. When Nebuchadnezzar gives him a very direct question, are you able to give me the dream and its interpretation? The practical answer is yes. Yes, he can. God gave it to him and he's about to do that. Literally, in the next few years, he will do that very thing. But that's not what Daniel says. Even though it's true, when the king asks, can you do this? He says, nobody can do this. But look at verse 28. He says, but there's a God in heaven who can. There is a God in heaven who can. And look, this is the whole point. This is the whole reason he was given a dream. Don't get caught up in the details later on in the dream. This is the point. This is what the Lord is trying to show to everyone and especially Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who holds all things in his hands, who sees the future and gives empires to whom he will, but there's a God who is bigger than you. And this is the perspective that Nebuchadnezzar needs. But look, put this in context. This is hard. It doesn't look that way from his perspective. Remember, Daniel can't be more than 20 years old at this point. We're still real early in his life. He's a young guy. His nation has been conquered by this king. Nebuchadnezzar sits at the nerve center of a world empire. His city is vast. It's a metropolis of all of this culture and power. Everybody wants to come here. And sitting at the pinnacle of all that power stands Nebuchadnezzar, right at the pinnacle of the entire world. It looks from the outside like he has all the power, but that's not actually true. Because you see, above all that power stands a God who holds all things in his hands. There is a God who holds history, people, everything in his hands. And he is trying to give this perspective to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you and I see the perspective that God is actually in control? Regardless of what it looks like on the outside, regardless of what your eyes see or what everybody tells you, do you have the perspective that God actually is in control of all things? Because if you and I don't see that perspective, we will descend into fear and chaos. And we know that all too well this week. Because all too well, we have been wrestling for the past couple of days with the tragedy that happened in our city. Because just a few miles from here, in a church that looks on the outside a lot like ours, a gunman opened fire on a Thursday afternoon and killed people. And the thing that we've been seeing on the news in other cities and other places, we got to see right here. I wonder how you felt when you heard that news. Angry, scared, sad, hurt. I hope that you've been praying for all the people at St. Stephen's. I have. I've been praying for their congregation. Been praying for them as they try to come to grips with this. But see, here's the thing. In the wake of that, you're you're saying, but Adam, that, that could have happened here. And you're right. And it just as well could have happened here. Adam, I don't understand this. I don't even know how you would even possibly prevent something like this. And Adam, if it can happen there, then it can happen here. And that just brings an intense amount of fear to us, does it not? Amidst all the sadness, there's just 
anxiety that comes with that. And what do you do with it? Because you see, uh, tragedies like this, it, it pierces the bubble that we put over our lives that tells us that we can actually control everything. Tragedies like this remind us that you and I still live in a dark world. It reminds us that you and I live in a broken world, a sinful world where tragedies happen and diseases happen and, and, and terrible things still happen and we can't fully control it. We can't fully insulate ourselves from it. We can't fully predict what is going to happen. And if it is all on you, if it's up to you to figure it out, if it's up to you to keep yourself safe, then yes, you probably should just go lock yourself away in, in fear for the rest of your life. But what happens when you look bigger than that and when you see on the surface the chaos of this world, but then you lift your eyes up and recognize that above all of this, there's still a God who's in heaven. There's still a God who is greater than all the chaos of this world. There is still a God who has seen all of the travesties from the first sin up till now and has a plan to redeem all of it. He's the God who can conquer sin, death, hell, and the grave. He's the God who says this, that madmen with guns don't end up with the last laugh. That they crazy people or evil people or terrible people don't get to deter the plan of God himself. That God is still in heaven. He is still on his throne. And in him is an eternal life that cannot be taken away from us no matter how much power any one person has. Do you have the perspective that God is still in heaven and he's in control? Do your eyes see it? Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Daniel has no power as a young man here, and yet he strides in, recognizing in front of the greatest man on the planet, there's still a God in heaven who's greater than you. And when you have that kind of perspective, even in the midst of pain and chaos, it can give you comfort and security because it's not all on you. It's not all resting on you. We don't have that kind of power. Daniel doesn't have that kind of power. He says, I didn't get this because I'm any better than anybody else on the planet. I only have this knowledge because there's a God in heaven who gives it to me. Do you recognize that there's a God in heaven? Now, honestly, that's really the whole point. We're gonna get into the dream now, but, but really, that's it. Don't get lost in the details of the dream. This is what God is trying to show Nebuchadnezzar and what he's trying to show us today. But look at verse 31, and let's see what the dream says. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance is frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image of its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of, summer, of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, 
because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall still be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Now, this is a very famous image in Scripture, this dream of a multi-metaled statue. It's some large statue, and it's got all these different metals from the gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron and clay at the feet. And then there's going to be this massive stone, this rock that was not cut by any human hand that will come in and strike the base and then destroy everything and then grow into a kingdom that spans over the entire earth. Now, we could get lost in the details here, and we're going to come back to this in chapter 7 because we're going to see something very similar there. And people have tried to figure out, okay, which kingdoms are, are which and what's he really talking about here? And scholars debate as to which kind of scheme you want to land on as to what, which empire is referred to by which metal. But the main point is this, that regardless of how you look at all of these different empires, there's going to be a kingdom that is coming that will never end. There is a kingdom that is coming that is not made by human hands. There is a kingdom that is coming that no man by himself gets to rule and pass on to his sons and daughters. No, there's a heavenly kingdom that's going to do what no human kingdom has ever done before. It's going to be an everlasting kingdom that will actually span the entire world. And we know that this is true because it's already happening. Because true to his word, Nebuchadnezzar will fall. The Babylonians will fall. And after him, it'll be the the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans come after them. And in the midst of the Roman Empire, there's going to be a kingdom that has come. And we see it in the lips of Jesus Christ. Look what it says here in Mark. Uh, This should be in chapter one, verses 14 through 15. It says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came in Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the consistent message of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Read the gospels. You will see it everywhere. He's always talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He says, I have come to bring this, this kingdom. Think about the Lord's prayer. He says, listen, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is coming not simply to give us advice. He's not coming to show us simply how to live. He says, no, I'm coming to inaugurate a kingdom that will be everlasting. 
This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not coming for one people or two people or or just one group or two groups or, or at one time or in one place. No, this kingdom will be for all peoples to anybody who will surrender and depend upon me, who will repent of their sins and recognize I'm not the center. I am not the monarch, but Jesus Christ, you are Lord of the universe. I need you to save me. When you and I become Christians, we join a heavenly kingdom that will never end. And quite literally, it is spanning the entire planet. It starts in the Roman Empire, but not only outlasts it, it will conquer it. And then from there, it will move into all peoples and nations and tribes and tongues for 2,000 years. It has been spanning the planet. Right now, you and I get to worship. In this 24-hour period, we worship with brothers and sisters all across the planet. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come. Because the kingdom of God continues to expand. This isn't a kingdom built on military power or coercion or might. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ who says, I have come to give you life that you might have it more abundantly, that in me you might have eternal life. And so look at how it ends. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar turns out to be true to his word. He showers gifts and honor upon Daniel. Daniel did what no one could do and so Nebuchadnezzar rightfully honors him. And you might read what he says and say, oh, he gets it. He sees the God of gods, the God of kings. He's recognizing it, but let's not really go too far here. As we continue to walk through the book, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really grab on to true faith in the Lord. What we really see at the end of the day is that Nebuchadnezzar is a selfish narcissist. You see, it really works out well for him, does it not? He's the head of gold. He's doing great. He's the king of kings. His kingdom's going to be better than all the other kingdoms and mine's not even going to be conquered. It's going to be a long time before this happens. And so if I'm in control and I'm better than everybody else and all this other stuff happens after I die, this sounds great to me. Thanks, Daniel. And moves him right along. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is just fine to gain the whole world and lose his soul. And I wonder if we are. Because you see, again, we're not Near Eastern monarchs, but it's very possible for us to do the same. When you and I refuse to see the heavenly perspective that there is a God in heaven, when we reduce everything down to simply our lives and what we see and what we can accomplish, what ends up happening is that we try to gain the whole world, but in the process, we lose our souls. We don't actually have true life that goes on forever. We don't have the life that we were made for. Some of us, you might say, Adam, I'm, I'm doing I'm very well for myself. I'm, I'm very successful right now. Even in the midst of the economic downturn, I've prepared well. I've got all my, my assets in place. I'm doing awesome. I've achieved all the goals that I have in life. I, I've got the world by the tail. I, I seem to be doing great. And, and God bless you. I'm so glad that you get to enjoy that. But just remember, all of that is going to pass away. And when it's all passed away, will you finally recognize 
that there's a God who's in heaven? Or will you try to grab onto everything in your own power, in your own way, and refuse to see the greater perspective? Or maybe for some of you, say, Adam, that's not my situation. Adam, I'm scared to death. I'm scared to death about the economic downturn. I'm retired. I can't handle things like this. I don't have the kind of time to do that anymore. Adam, I can't control what's going to happen in our culture. I can't control mass shootings. I can't control what my kids do. I can't control what my family does. I can't control what's going to happen around me. Adam, I feel out of control in the midst of it. And if you feel that kind of anxiety, can you lift your eyes and recognize that there's still a God who's in heaven? That things aren't actually out of control. That's what the world would have you believe. That's what the enemy would have you believe. But there is still a God in heaven who loves you, who is in control. He is on his throne and his kingdom lasts forever. And you say, yeah, but Adam, how do you know that's true for me? How can you say that that's true for me? How can you know that that he loves me, that I can be a part of that kingdom? Let's go back and look at two final things. Look at verse 11. And notice what the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the wise men said to the king. He said, the thing that the king asks is difficult and no no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. You see, that's where they're wrong. They assume that gods don't dwell in the flesh, that gods don't interact with us like that, that no one can do that because that's not exactly what gods do and they didn't until they did. Because you see, there has come a God who has come in the flesh, has he not? Look what it says in 1 John chapter 1, actually John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word is Jesus Christ, the son of God, the God who has enthroned his heaven, has sent his son to literally be God incarnate among us, to dwell among us, tabernacle among us. And this Jesus Christ has done what no one else has ever done. He lives a perfect life, not simply as an example to us, but when all the power of this world rises up to kill him, to rise up everything they do to destroy him, this same Jesus, by his own power, rises from the grave. He conquers sin, death, and hell. He makes a mockery of all human power. And when he rises from the grave, he does not simply rise in vengeance, he rises in grace and truth truth that says this, I am in control. I do lead a heavenly kingdom that will never end and you can be a part of it. Why? Because I give you grace. No matter who you are or what you've done or how many times you've failed or how little you've seen this perspective, if you are simply willing to see me, to recognize that I am the God of heaven, I am the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that I died on the cross to save you, that you cannot save yourself. You cannot control this yourself. But in me, you can have eternal life. Would you surrender your life to me? Would you let me be the center of your perspective? Would you let me show you what life is really all about when you and I have that kind of perspective in the heavenly kingdom that has come of the Savior that rules and reigns today, you and I can have peace even in the midst of chaotic circumstances. Do you see that there's a God who is in heaven? So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment.
I don't know what your perspective is today. I know this for some of you, but for most of you, I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're struggling with or wrestling with. The Lord does, though. But more to the point, you do. And I wonder how you feel about that today. Do you feel the pressure to fix it? Do you feel like it's all on you? Do you feel like you're the only one who has to deal with this? Maybe you feel ashamed because you say, Adam, I've already messed it up. I can't fix it. I don't even have the option anymore. I wonder if today you could lift your eyes and see that there's still a God who's in heaven. A God who loves you, who made you, who hasn't abandoned you, and who is bigger than every problem, every issue. He is bigger than death itself. And in him, you can have eternal life, forgiveness, love, security when we stop trying to be the king of our own world and instead we recognize that there's a God who's in heaven who is worthy of worship and praise. And I need to lift my eyes to him above all. Maybe it's been a while since you've done that, but maybe this morning you just need with the eyes of your heart to lift your heart up out of your circumstances, out of the fear and the chaos and see that he still reigns and find comfort and peace in him. So in just a moment, we're gonna stand and sing and I'll be here up at the front. If you wanna pray, I'd love to pray with you. If you wanna come to this altar, feel free to do that. But I wonder if all of us this morning can give worship and praise to a God who loves us, cares for us, and through Jesus Christ has secured for us a salvation that cannot be taken away by the madness of this world. So Father, thank you. I thank you that through the ups and downs of empires, the passing of eons and epochs, you just don't change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're just as solid today for, as you were for Daniel thousands of years ago. You're just solid as today as the day when you stepped foot on this planet. You're as solid today as when you ascended to the right hand of the Father. You were just as solid today as you will be forevermore. So Father, for all my brothers and sisters in this room, would you help us today to lift our eyes to you, to see you above all, to put our trust in you, to pray and worship and surrender and dependence. God, thank you that we do not have to fear because you cannot be overcome. I pray for anybody in this room who is just enslaved to anxiety today, Lord, that in some small way today, you can bring them peace as they look to you above all. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray.